Welcome to Succession Stories, insights for next generation entrepreneurs. I'm Lori Barkman. I've spent my career bringing an entrepreneurial approach to mature companies struggling with change. As an outside executive of a third generation, 120 year old company, I was part of a long-term succession plan. Now I work with entrepreneurs, privately held companies and family businesses to develop innovations that create enterprise value and transition plans to achieve their long-term goals. On this podcast, listen in while I talk with entrepreneurs who are driving innovation and culture change. I speak with owners who successfully transitioned their company and others who experienced disappointment along the way. Guests also include experts in multi-generational businesses and entrepreneurship. If you are a next-generation entrepreneur looking for inspiration to grow and thrive, or an owner who can't figure out the best way to transition their closely held company, this podcast is for you. Subscribe to our newsletter for more resources to build value in your business. Visit small.big.com. That's small.big.com and sign up today. This episode is about deal making during times of COVID-19. I spoke with Chris Broadman, the president of Metz Lewis, a law firm specializing in M&A and business transactions. We talked about the impact of the pandemic on private equity and strategic deals. More business owners are thinking about selling their company, but is the company ready to be bought? As Chris says, when the machine breaks and you're in Florida, you don't shut down because you're the only person who knows how to kick it in the right place. For business owners thinking about selling their company, I hope you enjoy our conversation about what it takes to ready a business for sale to maximize value. Chris, welcome to Succession Stories. I'm really glad to talk to you today. We've known each other now for a few years. We met, I would say, in the deal-making space. You were supporting me as I was the client working at a private equity company, and we were working on deals related to early-stage companies. But the focus of today's conversation is on really mature, privately held companies in the family business space. But the overarching theme is deal making. So I thought, what better guy to have on the show than you? And we can talk about your experience working with family businesses and deal making, and also deal making in times of COVID 19. So, welcome. I'm really glad to have you today. I am really glad to be here. And I will say, it's good to see you virtually. But I also will let you know that I have followed succession stories and I'm a big fan. It's, it's, uh, I've learned things. Uh, it's really a great thing you're doing. Thanks so much. I really appreciate that. It's nice to have a fan out here yeah. on the show. <laughs> very, very cool. Yeah. So Chris, why don't you tell us about yourself and about your firm? I am the president of Metz Lewis. We are a 40 lawyer business law firm. We have one location. It's downtown Pittsburgh. We serve predominantly our practices different service areas to privately held middle market companies. That is really our our wheelhouse. We do represent most of the banks in town on loan documentation and and workout. We've got a high net worth individual practice, both income and estate tax planning. But our main driver is the corporate practice, the business practice. So within that, my specialty is I do general corporate I'm outside general counsel, so to speak, for many lower middle market companies. And here at Metz Lewis, we do a significant amount of transactional work. You know, we've got, I think, nine lawyers in our corporate group, and 
we do 20 to 25 M&A deals a year. So it's a, it's a very active deal practice. I also, Lori, have been getting into, apropos to some of the questions I think you're going to ask me, I've really been focusing quite a bit on transition planning and helping middle market, lower middle market companies and the, the people that own and run them plan for what's next. And that is a big topic. It comes up so often in the context. What's so interesting, and I I love covering on the show, is talking to companies and leaders of companies about their business and sort of the meta macro sense of a transition. But also today, there's so many people that are thinking about transitions on the personal level. And the focus of this show today is is obviously on the the company level. But I just wanted to make that footnote. Transition is definitely a topic that's on our minds. So let's jump forward and talk about family business clients. Sure. And I'm curious to start off about what you see when it comes to family members in the business. Other folks I've talked to on the on the show have said different things. Some say, oh, you need to go work elsewhere before you come in. Or some say, okay, you can come in, but you have to come in before age 30. Yeah. There's all kinds of stipulations out there. What's what are some of the common themes that you see? I see it all over the board. You know, one end of the spectrum, you've got a very structured approach that some families take, and there are educational requirements and outside work requirements and achievements that have to occur in the outside work environment before you're eligible to come work for the family business. And you come into the family business and it's a very structured existence. You know, you're you come in at the level that you should come in based on your experience and your talent level and you're reviewed just like everyone else and you know you might even have a cognitive test, a predictive index test or something like that to make sure that that family members put in a part of the business that's suitable to uh, their their makeup and really just go through a, a structured process. If the intent is to grow that person into a leadership role, it can be done in a very structured way, um, often wanting that younger family member to be involved in all parts of the business before they you know, start to move up the ladder. On the other end of the spectrum, there's no structure at all. It's, you know, this is my child and my child has a God-given right to be the next person to run this business. And by the way, they're going to come in and they're going to make more than everyone else besides me and have authority that they really is not justified based on their experience and and talent level. So those are the two ends of the spectrum. And uh, you'll see varying degrees of that, you know, across the, the range of the spectrum as well. I will say what's more typical, unfortunately, I think the latter scenario is more typical, which is why, you know, there's a reason when you I don't know the exact numbers I used to, but there are studies and statistics on the you know percentage of multi-generational family businesses that are successful and that fail. And going from first generation to second generation, I don't remember, uh, you might know, but it's a very low percentage of success. And going from second to third is a is a drastic reduction in that percentage of success. So I think uh, there's no no mystery as to why those numbers are are there. Yeah, it's there's a saying of shirt sleeve to shirt sleeve in three years. I think that's kind of the majority, right? If you make it past the second generation to the third, 
there's probably some reason for that, but getting to the fourth is is a lot harder. Uh, and I think that magic number is somewhere around 8% make it to the third generation. Yeah. And yeah, there's all kinds of reasons for that. It seems to me, certainly there has to be a transition to someone. And sometimes there is a candidate internal who is a family member, and sometimes there isn't. And that is one of the things I wanted to ask about today in terms of succession. And that was my experience was I was part of a long-term succession plan and, and went through the PI and the whole executive recruitment yeah. process. And so I saw it from that angle and it took about six months. It was a very in-depth type of decision that both of us, you know, and for me and as well as the entity was making. So I, I respected it. It was a great process. What have you seen for organizations when they want to bring in a professional CEO? You know, have you seen it work well? Have you seen it not work well? Any words of wisdom of things to avoid? So, yeah, I've seen it work well, and I've certainly seen it not work well. And the one word that comes to mind for me in so many aspects of the, the, the subject that we're talking about, successful transition, is alignment. So I think what works well tends to work well if on the front end, everyone does the homework and asks the right questions and make sure that there's alignment. And by alignment, I mean, uh, I, you know, start with mission, vision, purpose. So, you know, if you're the patriarch or matriarch that's running that family business and ready to move on to the next phase of your life, and it's with a, whether it's with an outside CEO or, or a family member or a sale or whatever it may be, do you have a vision for where this company's going? And I think that to increase your odds of a successful transition, you, you need to have a vision. And if you're bringing on an outsider to take over the top spot, they need to share that vision, you know, because if they don't, you're not going to accomplish what you want to accomplish. So I think it starts with vision. And the other thing there to, to help drive alignment and or to help achieve the vision is I think it's very important the terms that this outside person has in their in their package when they come on. So there should be a performance aspect to, you know, they, they should have an equity incentive. I firmly believe that because it drives alignment, right? But it only drives alignment if that equity package, if the incentives are achieved based on goals and milestones that make sense to get us to, to where we're trying to go. Is that a difficult thing to do to achieve alignment? How, how many of these family businesses would you say have really well articulated the mission, vision, purpose, which some call values? How well is that? Or does a new CEO come in and say, wow, this isn't really articulated. Let's spend some time on that. Great question. On the first part of that question, I would say just in my experience, and I'm just, you know, one person in a 40 lawyer firm. So we have our the universe that we work in. But in our experience, it is not nearly often enough that these privately held family businesses have a mission, vision, purpose. It is less often. It's the case that they do not. So I think if you start bringing that CEO in and you haven't even figured out for yourself where you want this to go and what you're trying to achieve, your chances of success are are greatly diminished. Really great part of your question was though, okay, so I'm a CEO and I'm coming in. What's my ability to 
put my thumbprint on what that vision is. And I do think that if you're going to be successful sitting in that top seat, you have to have some uh, control and ability to put your own stamp on that for sure. You, you can't, if you don't believe it and it's not what you want to achieve, how are you going to lead others to it, right? There has to be an authenticity and a, and a belief there. So there is a line there that I would say the vision has to be shared at maybe at a high level. Like, is this a growth oriented vision or is it a, let's just maintain. And my vision as the, as the founder who's bringing in a CEO is I want to keep getting paid for a while. So I don't want to change anything. I don't want to try to grow because that entails risk and it entails cost. And if you're bringing in a CEO that, hey, listen, I'm with you. That's what this business should be. Great. If you're bringing in a CEO that wants to take it to the next level and you don't want it to take it to the next level, then you're not bringing in the right person because you don't share the same vision. Yeah, I think alignment is a perfect way to describe it. And it's also probably timing too. When you bring in an outside CEO is really critical to thinking about the company in in that longer term, because there's kind of this tug of war between the way we've always done it, and then maybe the way we could do it. And the existing management team, which is, let's just say, family business management team, they've seen what's worked. But it could be that what's worked in the past isn't necessarily going to get them to that next level in the future. And that middle ground is the tough part because there's, you know, you can kind of visualize this tug of war between, well, hey, let's make changes versus, well, this worked for us. So let's just stay where we've been. And if you're the new person coming in, that's kind of a tough spot, right? So if the mission, vision, values is already well articulated, you can kind of build from that. If it isn't, then it feels like a little bit of a murky ground and perhaps some red flags for the outside CEO to come in, or it could be a great opportunity. I guess you never know. And you know, if you're if you're that outside CEO, I think it's important for you when you're going through the discussion process on on whether this makes sense for everyone. Um, if you're a good CEO, you understand mission, vision, purpose, right? So you should be understanding how important that is. And and if the ownership group, the family doesn't, uh, it's not you know they've never focused on that. The CEO should be driving the discussion in that in that direction to make sure that everyone's on the on the same page and and aligned. Yeah, and I wanted to ask leads me to my next question about other roles in the company that can have influence, such as a family council or a board of advisors. What, in your experience, have you helped family businesses establish new entities like an independent board? or a family council to help aggregate decisions and talk about succession planning? Yeah, those um, governance entities can be highly valuable um, if they're done well. And and the other big if, in, in my experience, is if the leader of that family business um, has a growth mindset and not a fixed mindset, which some of the things you've, been, you've mentioned in the, in the last few minutes I'm thinking, yeah, we're talking about growth mindset versus fixed mindset. The people, the tug of war, the this is the way we've always done it. We're not going to change. And a lot of, in my experience, um, often that's the case because people are afraid to change. They're, 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 you know, hey, I've got a decent thing. I've made a nice living. I, why would I risk that by trying to grow and bring in new people and have, you know, um, so I think if the, if the owner, the, 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 
patriarch or matriarch uh, who's driving that business, if they have a growth mindset, willing to embrace change, willing to think differently about what it, you know, there's a reason that business is at the level it's at for the, after the 25 years you've been running it, right? It might be at a great level. I'm not saying it's not, but it hasn't gone past that for a reason, you know? So um, if you're willing to take it to the next level, then an advisory board or uh, some other governance entity, I think can really be valuable in that situation. Otherwise, and I've been on, I've been on boards on both uh, ends of this, where the family leader is willing to embrace change and, and wants to grow the business and is open to, you know, what it takes to do that. And if you get the right board members and do it the right way, that can really drive results. But I've also been on the board where they, you know, the 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 family business leader sets up the advisory board or the governance council because that's what their advisors tell them they should do. And they read a book and said, this is the thing to do. But you get in there and they are a fixed mindset. They are not willing to embrace change. And no matter what you bring up, it's if you're not a yes person to where they want to go, they're not going to change. And then you're really just spinning your wheels and uh, wasting time and sometimes going, you know, going to go backwards instead of forwards. I think, you know, Lori, I would say I, I'm a Vistage member. I've been a Vistage member for quite some time. And I've learned so many uh, great things in Vistage. And But there's one thing above all, and our group leader is a guy named Chuck Ganaris. And you know, every Vistage meeting, Chuck starts with reminding us about the belief wheel. You know, and Chuck's belief wheel is you uh, your beliefs drive your judge form your judgments, your judgments determine your actions, and your actions determine your results. And the reason why Chuck drives that every single meeting um, is because it relates to change. You know, the, the other big thing that um, you know, Chuck's number two big thing is a great business leader's primary, they all have one thing in common. They all understand the need for change and they all can successfully manage change. And if you don't change, start by changing the way you, what your beliefs are, your judgments and your actions are never going to change and you're going to get the same results. So when I talk about a fixed mindset and a growth mindset and why that's so important as to whether this governance entity is going to work, that's really what I mean. That person has to be willing to change their beliefs um, if they really want to have a different result going forward. I totally agree. It also makes me think to ask you then if there's a listener thinking about creating a board of advisors, what advice would you have for this CEO or business owner in thinking about maybe the skill sets or characteristics? You mentioned to be on the same page about mindset. So that's definitely one of them. But what might be some other attributes of board members that they might want to consider surrounding themselves. Someone has jokingly said to me, yeah, the country club board member selection doesn't work anymore. It's really, we're beyond that. Well, so what else is there? Right. Honesty and independence. Someone who, whether it's a difficult thing to say to you, is willing to say it because they are there and they understand that their role is to um, benefit the entity. So I actually have been um, 
I've been removed from a board <laughs> because of that. Um, you were too you know, honest. <laughs> I, I was, yeah. Well, you know, um, when it came to voting, the person that appointed me to the board, this was not an advisory board, it was a full voting board. And um, I had a great relationship with this person. And um, But when it came to voting on some things that I didn't vote in the way that he was voting, I was not long for that board. Um, so I, I think that's what you need, first and foremost, is someone who has the right experience to express independent thoughts that are valuable, but uh, someone who's going to tell it like it is. How did you feel about that being removed? Did you think that they were making a mistake removing you because they were removing all dissension and just trying to get groupthink and make it a happy place? Or were you agreeing that 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 was the right thing that you needed to leave? I did not think it was the right thing for the company at all. But I I was actually, I had mixed feelings and I was heartbroken might be uh, a bit dramatic, but I had a, it has affected my, I had a great personal relationship with this person, which I don't have, we're, we're cordial, but I do not have the same bond with that person that I had before. Um, and uh, I think there was a feeling of betrayal. He felt that I betrayed him by not um, getting on board with supporting all of the, the, the direction he wanted to go on everything. So I, I, I think it was the right thing to do because he was in control. And if, you know, if that's the way he felt, it wasn't going to be better if I stayed on. Um, but I, I wish it didn't turn out like that because one of the things for me, you know, we formed our firm in 98 uh, you know, and um, someone asked me once, like, what's the most important thing to you in your years of doing what you're doing? And when I think about it, it's it's relationships. And I look and I have so many long-term relationships. So to have a relationship that I thought was that strong go away for uh, for that reason, it, it bothers me to this day. One of your characteristics you talked about was independence. And that's what you were trying to be. You were trying to be completely independent and make a recommendation for a business decision that you felt was the right thing. That's really difficult because, yeah, I mean, ultimately, he didn't want you to be independent. He wanted you just to be on his side, whatever that meant. Right. So that's a good point of view, I think, for people creating a board. And also, if you're going to be an advisory board member, you know, what to watch out for. It also leads me to the question about compensation. There's a, a I'll call him a friend, but he he's a longtime mentor of mine. He was my first, very first boss right out of college. And we've stayed in touch all these years. So don't laugh. That was a long time ago. I know. <laughs> but uh, we've stayed in touch. And he serves on boards, but he doesn't take compensation. And that's his choice. And I know there are there are typically compensation packages. So in your experience, what have you seen for private companies when they create a board of advisors? Do they participate in the equity of the company, typically? I would sometimes, but I wouldn't say that's typical, at least in, in my experience. I would say it's typical that there's some form of compensation, whether it's a fixed annual fee or a um, per meeting fee. Um, I would think that that cash compensation is more typical in, in the in the companies that I'm involved with. Um, although there's there are equity situations, and again, it's very similar to the discussion we had about the outside CEO. Um, I think that can be a really powerful thing if you have the right people 
And if you um, have the equity issuance uh, arranged in a way that incentivizes uh, the right conduct, you know, um, and and aligns interests. So uh, there should definitely be a performance-based aspect. And there should also be a time-based aspect because one of the difficulties with the equity sharing, especially in a closely held business, a family-run business, uh, is what happens when that person leaves? So if my situation, if I had, I didn't have, uh, I took no compensation on that board that I referenced, but if I had an equity position and we separated, we need to have had a pretty good arrangement up front on what happens when I'm gone. And for me, it would be, well, listen, you can't just fire me when you want and get out of any of the equity. And for the company, well, if you're not carrying your weight or the company's not benefiting from you, why should, and someone else is driving value and you're not really uh, helping accrete that value, why should you uh, you know, continue to get equity? So that is one of the difficulties that you really need to think through on the equity side is what happens when that person leaves? Yeah, definitely. Well, let's switch gears now and come to more of a discussion around COVID-19. It's been kind of a crazy few months for a lot of people, a lot of companies. And I'm sure in your experience with clients, you've seen a lot of different things. There may be companies that wanted to bring in outside capital before the pandemic hit. And so curious what you've seen about that in terms of COVID-19 and deal making. So it's probably been harder for private companies to get access to capital. So many banks and lenders are so focused on you know, PPP and, and the CARES Act and just getting everything there. And rightly so. Everyone's attention was there. So in terms of deal making, has it really stopped, slowed down? Do you see it coming back? There's a lot of what I'm asking you here, I realize, but just kind of observational now, if you look back at the last few months, you know, what are some of the major themes? On the deal making side, and I, when I think deal making in this context, I think M&A, right? Buying and selling. What we noticed was a definite pause in March, April, May, June, um, we still we we still here at Metz Lewis. We closed uh, two deals at the end of April, and we closed uh, one or two in in June. But we also had a pipeline of deals when the pandemic started. Let's say we had ten deals, and I say pipeline, varying degrees of moving forward. So some had signed letters of intent, others were close to signed letter of intent, others had just started discussions with the market or investment bankers. So varying degrees, but, you know, we closed three or four of those and uh, a couple of those have, they just put on hold and continued to have dialogue. Some are still having dialogue. And then a handful of those just went away. They just, Hey, we, we can't move forward. Uh, sometimes it was the buyer. Sometimes it was the seller. Um, we can't we can't get our head around this right now. Let's let's see what happens. So um, that was earlier in the pandemic. Recently, here towards the end of summer, we've seen deal activity. Our deal activity really start to pick up. Um, there have been one or two distress deals. I would call them that that we are working on, but just normal deals, just pre same as pre pandemic type deals. 
we've seen several of those, um, you know, that, that we're in the middle of right now. Um, one thing, no surprise, some companies we all know have really been affected by COVID and others have not, or it's been a, a positive uh, impact on their, on their business, right? Uh, depending on what industry you're in. So no surprise that most of, unless it's a distress deal, most of the deals we're seeing are in those industries where um, not only has there not been a, a big downturn for the target company through COVID, but there are also industries where the smart money would be, this is probably not going to be that much affected by COVID. Um, some of the deals that fell apart and aren't back together, no surprise, are in deals where the buyer's looking and, you know, and saying, I, I need to see how this all plays out before I put my money into um, a home healthcare business that you're trying to sell based on 2019 EBITDA, you know, uh, and, and telling me, don't worry, it's, it's going to come back to that. Those deals are tough to, tough to get done right now. So a couple of questions about that. On the industry side, can you talk about what industries you're seeing the activity in generally? Sure. So I'm happy to talk about that. Uh, so we've got some fintech companies that are um, that have we've been working on with an acquisition strategy for a number of years, and that strategy has continued to roll right through right through COVID. Um, there are some medical device companies. Uh, I'm involved with a company that's um, in the respiratory device. Uh, arena, yeah, and and they are uh, their doors being knocked on quite a bit, right? By suitors, uh, their their future looks looks pretty good right now. So, um, yeah, it, it, it's there's no magic to it if you think about it. It's the things you would expect, um, you know, are are still going strong. I was in a webinar the other day, and it was a deal-focused webinar. So there were private equity firms on the calls, and they were talking about activity as well, kind of picking back up, as you said, sort of in a focused areas. Are you seeing these are more private equity-related deals or more strategic buyers or both? Both. Okay. Yeah. So at Mets Lewis, our deal practice is evenly, year to year, it's pretty well evenly divided among sell side, buy side, private equity, strategic. So, um, you know, any year it might lean a little bit more one way or the other, but I would say our mix right now is no different than it's, than it's ever, than it's ever been. Yeah. You know, we've got, um, we're on buy side for a few PE firms right now, um, um, engaging in, Two deals. We just got hired in the last two weeks on um, two deals to represent. They're not family businesses, but they're founder businesses. You know, businesses where person started the company, grew the company to a you know twenty or twenty five million dollar business in these cases, and now is uh, you know baby boomer getting towards the end of the cycle, and their transition choice is a third party exit. So we're seeing activity in all areas. For the baby boomer transition where there's a third party exit, 
Do those clients typically have a, hey, I'm going to go sit on a beach kind of idea and they know what they want to do with their money. They've already lined up maybe their values and and philanthropic ideas, or do you find that it's, oh, we're just going to, we're going to go through the motions and then we'll figure it out. Again, great question. Um, I'm thinking back to all my clients who've been in that position and how many of them have struggled with just what you're talking about. Um, even the ones who think they planned it out, uh, invariably they struggle. And, you know, when we're talking about that baby boomer scenario, person who grew the business and they're the key person and they have, in most, in many cases, they remain the key person all the way up through exit. Um, you know, people say it's business, it's not personal. Well, for those people, business and personal, there's no line between business and personal. And um, they invariably, they struggle with the idea of letting that go. A lot of times it's really such a part of who they are and their identity that um, uh, it's, it's a, it's a struggle. Um, It's much less of a struggle though, Lori, for the ones who've worked with either are smart enough to figure it out themselves or have gone through a transition advisory process well ahead of that transition. Uh, And transition advisory process, what I mean by that is not just how are we going to sell the company, but how are we going to prepare the company for sale? So A, that you get get the most value out of it. Um, What has to happen? It's not just a big EBITDA. It's an infrastructure that's in place. It's personnel. It's something that you know, when the machine breaks down uh, and you're in Florida, we don't shut down because you're the only guy who knows how to kick it in the right place, you know? Right, right. <laughs> um, so it's all those things that go into the planning. And how much money do you need? What do you want your lifestyle to be afterwards? Have you really gone through a process with an advisor to figure out what, what that's going to be? Do you know what your net proceeds are, are going to be from this transaction Philanthropically, do you have a plan there? All those things, the sooner you get on those and focus on how important it is to have a handle on that, the better your chances are of of having a um, having peace of mind through your through your transition. I think that's great advice. It also makes me wonder: Do people then set up a separate transition advisory board for, let's say, when the time horizon gets shorter? And maybe it's five years out, 10 years out. I'm kind of sensing a pattern where if it's, oh, that's 20 years away, they don't want to talk about it. But if it's maybe within a 10-year time horizon, five-year time horizon, certainly two years sort of feels, feels like, oh my gosh, you're probably way behind the eight ball. But is that what you would advise? Set up a separate transition advisory board with experts? That's what I think some people look to surround themselves with skills and expertise that they don't have which makes sense. You can't know everything and you don't want to as a business owner. Right. They're not an attorney most likely or they're not a financial advisor or would they rely on their existing board of advisors for that? Yeah. I think most pe- most people in that situation do not seek out an advisor who is um experienced in that particular uh strategy. I think most people if they're going to rely on anyone, it's going to be their existing group of trusted advisors, whether they're trusted lead, it might be their financial advisor, it might be their lawyer, it might be their CPA, it might be whoever. Um, but I, I I think that's 
those people are good at what they do. But this is a different skill set. This this requires a different type of advising. So I, I we see I can't if I had a nickel for every time that my partner John Lewis, who you know is a big M and A guy, and um, you know been we've been together for a long, long time. If I had a nickel for every time we said to each other, we're selling a, a client's company, and we said if we just could have talked to this person five years ago, he would, he or she would be in such a better position right now because people, I think they just run the business and and run the business and their idea is when it's time to sell, it's time to sell. And often, unfortunately, that time to sell isn't even um, a planned uh, exit. It's often times I waited too long to think about this and, and get an advisor and plan for this. And now I have no choice either my health is bad or the business is distressed or someone died or um, or I just don't have the energy anymore. So I don't want to go through a five-year planning process. I just want to, I'm ready to be done. So I don't know if that exactly answers your question, but I think it's a really critical need out there and not enough people go through the right process. Yeah. There's always the look back to see what you would have done differently. And uh, it's probably the rare person to say, oh, we did it 100% right. And it is good to have advisors around you that can give you that insight of where other mistakes they've seen along the way. And so I appreciate that you do that for clients. You know, on that, Lori, just, uh, just one more thought. So many of these people are great at what they do, right? They're, they're great. But when you were talking about that baby boomer, uh, business. Very often when they, it's time for them to sell, it's the only M&A deal they've ever been involved in, in, in their life. They don't. So they're talked about the country club. They may be at the country club for three years, listening to their friends talk about multiples and on EBITDA. Oh, I just sold for 11 times, you know, and they're sitting there thinking, well, my EBITDA does this. So I'm going to get 10 or 11 times, not realizing that there are fundamental differences maybe between their company and that other company as to why it got uh, 11 times. And those differences are most often fixable. You know, you can often create that value if you start early enough by having the right management team in place and the right infrastructure and the right systems and, uh, you know, having your intellectual property protected and your your key people, um, you know, tied to the business through compensation or agreements or whatever the case may be. All things that when a buyer comes in is going to have a dramatic effect, not only on the valuation, but sometimes even whether they want to buy your your company. You know, we talked about deal making and COVID. We talked about that a few minutes ago. And one thing that I am seeing is um, there's so much dry powder on the sidelines still for PE. And these folks make their living by trading companies, not by sitting on dry powder. So I expect there to be a lot of uh, activity going forward. Um, But I also expect with credit markets tightening that they're not going to just buy, they're going to be more careful about what they're buying. You know, so instead of a company that was a B company and, you know, we can we can overlook these problems or a C company and we can fix these problems. I think you're going to see more competition for the A company. Credit markets are loosening, but they're still they are tighter than they have been, no doubt about that. Um, so, you know, 
what I'm thinking, Lori, is that you really need to, if you're a seller, if you're a potential seller, you really need to get on that program way in advance to make yourself an, an A target, not a B or C target. Because while there's a lot of dry powder, credit's still tight, but we're in really uncertain times. Even going forward, who knows how this is going to play out. So what I'm thinking and we're seeing already is there's more competition for the A target companies. And the pricing, If we, I think the pricing is still strong, uh, the valuations for those companies. But if you're a B company or a C company, you either, you're going to either get your value pushed down or you're not even going to be saleable um, right now because that money that's buying, they need to be more careful uh, uh, now. They need to make sure that they're getting an asset that's going to uh, deliver results going forward. So um, all, the more, all the more reason why you really need to plan your transition way ahead of time. And, you know, not to get off the subject, but I think it's a really relevant to everything we're talking about. When we talk about transition, you know, it can take many forms. I mean, we talked earlier about succession, and now we're talking about an exit to a third party. But, you know, that succession could be to family. We've focused on that quite a bit, but it could be to your management team, or it could be, you mentioned, an outside CEO. Um, it could be a partial sale of your company to a PE group where, you know, you do a recapitalization and you take some of your chips off the table in the form of cash, but you maintain an equity position going forward. Um, it could be an ESOP. It, it could be in a distressed situation if, or a death or a disability. It could be a liquidation, which very often is not the most effective way to go. The planning that that I'm talking about, though, you know, really looking at that transition event and getting out, getting ahead of it, you know, five years ahead of it. It's the same planning, whether it's an ESOP is your goal or a third party sale is your goal or a management succession or a family succession. It's the same blocking and tackling that you need to do along the way, because what you're really doing, you're not exit planning. You're not, you're, you're making your business stronger, which is going to create more options for a good transition. That's, uh, I think, very important for anyone who's listening as a business owner. Um, that's the thing I really think is critical to focus on. I love how you just put that, Chris. It's, it fits really well with a client that I just started working with. He has a 10-year time horizon for his firm. And what we did was we worked on a strategic plan for the next three years with his team, which was great from a timing perspective too, because they're just coming back to the office. They haven't seen each other in months. And it's a way to start to articulate this kind of structural capital that you were just talking about. So right now, he's kind of driving the business development. He's driving so many pieces of the business and he realizes it can't all rest with him as a single you know person there's there's risk there and it's also not necessarily scalable and then from a transition at some point in the future there's also you know issues with that so the process now you know is okay let's galvanize the team let's get everybody on the same page and a part of what we're working on then in their growth plan is how do we make sure that we don't have too much customer concentration of revenue? How do we make sure that our processes are documented? How do we make sure that we have the right skill sets and the right seats for what 
our services are. And by the way, our services are great, but we want to launch more services. So how do we introduce those and understand what the market needs are and try to look for some white space and go find it? And it's a roadmap. And as you said, there's all these pieces that need to get put into place before for this gentleman, you know, he's he's 10, another 10 years out, but he knows that this is going to take some time. So let's say flash forward, you know, in five to seven years when he's sort of more ready to have these conversations about valuation and where they are in the market, what might suit them, then he'll have had all these other structural pieces in place. So I like how you positioned it. I think it's great advice for business leaders to just make sure that they're working on the right stuff. I like to say, you know, you got to work on your business and not just in your business. Yeah. And strategic planning dovetails with transition planning, succession planning. It, it absolutely does. It has to. Yeah. And I think it is smart to engage your management team in the strategic planning side. And of course, work with your board of directors, your board of advisors on what that bigger picture for transition. But at some point, there's an intersection. Yeah. Where, you know, I've talked to some people about, did they include their management team? Some would say, not till the end, not until I absolutely needed to. And some with family, absolutely they have to because they're part of the family council. They know what's happening. So it really is very unique. I can't say they're all snowflakes, but kind of, kind of is. And yeah. Yeah. You know, Lori, um, listening to you, it, it brings me back to what we discussed earlier about what to look for in an outside advisor, you know, board member or a transition planning advisor. Um, one of the other really critical things it, beyond being independent is you need someone on that team that can execute, can, can oversee the execution of the plan. Because, you know, um, developing the plan is difficult, but it's much easier than executing the plan. Right, yeah. that's true. That is, and I know that's something that you are, you know, that 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 you are very good at, and that you have a, a you know an experience and a track record um, of. So be careful that you don't just get an advisor who thinks that the job is done when you have the plan, because the job is done when you have the plan, and then, as most of these companies do, need help with a, a process that's going to result in, in execution and, and a process that's going to result in identifying how, when and how to change the plan as it goes, because it is a fluid situation. That's true. I like to say you can't just create the binder and have it sit on a shelf and feel good about it. It's getting dusty, but who cares? Right. You know, if you're not bringing it to life, if you're not executing it, you're not holding people accountable to it, including yourself, then then why bother? Absolutely. You know, what what good is it? So that's a really great point. So Chris, this has been a great conversation today. There's two last things for you. I love to ask all my guests, which you know because you listen as a fan, if they have a favorite saying or quote about entrepreneurship. I do. Um, and I'll I'll first say this it's not it wasn't made to apply to entrepreneurship. But to me, it's right on point. And it's from Yogi Berra, the old baseball player who was famous for saying things that didn't really make sense, but everyone still knew what he meant. And the saying, it go, I don't know if it's, this is it verbatim, but the idea was, uh, be careful if you don't know where you're going, because you might end up someplace else. <laughs> and, you know, it kind of ties back to the, to the beginning of our conversation you can tell how 
important, I feel, vision is as a, as a starting point. And that's why the Yogi Berra uh, saying is so relevant to entrepreneurship to me. That's a great quote. I love Yogi Berra. That's perfect. Thank you. And lastly, if people want to find you online, how should they find you? Our firm website is is the way to, uh, to, to look me up at metslewis.com. I'm also on LinkedIn um, and no other social media. That's, that's, that's the extent of it for me. That's great. Thank you. And I'll be sure to include those links in the show notes. Chris, it was so great to catch up with you today. Thanks so much for being here. And I'm really so excited that you're part of the show. Yeah, well, I am too. And thanks for having me. It was great to spend some time with you talking about something that we both are passionate about. Thank you. Innovation, transition, growth. Easy to say, but hard to do. If you're an entrepreneur facing these challenges, I get it. I work with businesses from small to big for strategic planning with your team to achieve your vision. Visit smalldotbig.com to schedule a call with me. I'd love to connect with you. Be sure to catch the next Succession Stories episode with more insights for next generation entrepreneurs. Thanks for listening.